Imagine you're at a friend's house. It's a group of you, and your friend who owns the house walks downstairs with a closed box. You ask him what's inside the box, and he says it's empty. He's going to use it to recycle all the bottles and cans once everyone leaves. Okay, simple enough. Everyone forgets about the box. An hour later, your friend who's a jokester goes to pick up some more drinks, and before he walks out of the house, he says, don't open that box. Suddenly, the box is interesting again. And sure enough, once he leaves, you and all your friends crowd around it and open the box. It's empty, just like he said. So, why did you feel so compelled to open it? It wasn't because you didn't believe him, it's because he told you not to. And sometimes we need no more motivation to do something than being told we can't. We hate feeling restricted, and we aggressively resist it. We're always in search of liberation. There's a little libertarian in all of us. But for the most part, we understand why there are laws in place that restrict certain freedoms and we do our best to follow those laws because accepting a little restriction in our lives isn't so bad if it means making the world better and safer overall. But not everyone feels that way. Not everyone willingly accepts restriction. Some people feel so strongly about their right to total liberty that they're willing to go to great lengths to preserve it, even if it means going up against the Goliath that is the United States government. And throughout history, Doing exactly what the government has told you not to do has usually come with a great cost. Ross Albright is still paying that cost. This podcast tells the stories of people we empathize with or root for, sometimes because of what they did, and sometimes in spite of it. I'm Caleb Carter. This is Antihero. Before hearing about what Ross did, I want to let his friends and family tell you who Ross is. Our friend Ross was arrested. And all we are left with is questions. More questions than answers. We don't know what happened. We don't know all the facts. But we do know something. We know the person. We know that Ross is the friend who always shows up. The friend you call when your car breaks down, or when you need help moving, or when you just need help. Ross is the friend you trust because he gives you his honest opinion, even when it's difficult to hear. Ross is the friend you can tell anything to because he always listens and never judges. We know who Ross is. He's the son who makes time for his family and the brother who moves across the world to be close to his sister. And the nephew is always happy to see me. We know who Ross is. And we know who Ross is not. Ross is not a criminal mastermind. And Ross is not a killer. We ask you to look beyond the headlines and see the man we love. Over the years, the support for Ross has never wavered. Family, friends, and even people who only met Ross once say the same things. The letters that piled up on the judge's desk said things like, Ross is one of those rare lights in the world and one of the best individuals I've ever met. I don't know anyone else who treats others with such compassion and respect. I've never met a person who cares about the world and humanity as truly as Ross does. He is one of the kindest, most genuine and generous souls that I've ever had the privilege of knowing. He cares only about using his talent and intelligence to solve problems and make things better for others. When I think of who Ross is, I think of abundant love. 
This young man can fill a room with his generous spirit. He exhibits a level of compassion that is rarely seen. His eagerness to explore human potential is inspiring. Ross was born in 1984. He grew up in Austin, Texas, where he attended Austin Westlake High School before getting a full academic scholarship to pursue a physics degree at UT Dallas. Then later, a master's of material science and engineering from Penn State. These are challenging degrees from very credible universities. Simply put, Ross was smart. And you can tell by the statements made by his friends and family, he was also helpful, caring, selfless, and peaceful. But of all the ways Ross Albright can be described, perhaps the description that has had the greatest impact on his life is that he was also a libertarian. A libertarian is someone who believes that the government should have very limited control over the choices people are allowed to make in their lives. The way libertarians see it, people should basically be able to do whatever they want, as long as they aren't hurting or cheating other people. You see, Ross wanted total liberty for everyone. Ross had plenty of big companies looking to hire him after he completed his master's program, but he felt strongly that people shouldn't trade their time on earth for money. So he skipped out on becoming an engineer or scientist and went into business for himself. Day trading on the stock market, starting an investment company, even a video game company. And while none of these endeavors proved to be successful, he still hadn't given up on his dream of creating something for himself. He knew he had the ability, he just needed the right idea. In the meantime, he settled into working at a bookstore owned by a childhood friend. Around this time, Ross updated his LinkedIn profile to read, I love learning and using theoretical constructs to better understand the world around me. Naturally, therefore, I studied physics in college and worked as a research scientist for five years. My goal during this period of my life was simply to expand the frontier of human knowledge. Now my goals have shifted. I want to use economic theory as a means to abolish coercion and aggression amongst mankind. Just as slavery has been abolished most everywhere, I believe violence, coercion, and all forms of force by one person over another can come to an end. The most widespread and systemic use of force is amongst institutions and governments, so this is my current point of effort. The best way to change a government is to change the minds of the governed, however. To that end, I am creating an economic simulation to give people a first-hand experience of what it would be like to live in a world without the systemic use of force. In 2011... Ross, 27 years old at the time, officially launched the Silk Road. By 2013, it had generated over $1 billion in total transactions, $80 million in commissions, and would be seized by the FBI. The Silk Road had the look and feel of your usual online marketplace and actually operated in a way that was very similar to Amazon. It connected buyers and sellers from different corners of the world and offered almost anything you could imagine. During his time as a day trader, Ross discovered Bitcoin, a cryptocurrency that has no ties to the government. He combined this with Tor, an encryption software that prevents the IP addresses of users from being revealed, allowing users to access the site anonymously and communicate anonymously. It's a funny thing. It just so happens that when people can buy and sell things anonymously, they tend to buy and sell things that are illegal. Unregistered weapons, counterfeit money, forged documents stolen credit card information, ATM hacking guys, the list goes on. In its heyday, the Silk Road gained over 20,000 new users each month, and this was due in large part to the availability of drugs. The selection was vast, and it's the main reason for the unbelievable growth and revenue generated by the Silk Road. And even though Ross was a user of natural drugs like weed and grew and sold his own mushrooms for the first few months the site was up, 
There's no way he could have predicted that the Silk Road would turn into one of the largest hubs for illegal drug distribution of its time. Because of the security measures that he had in place, and maybe because he was a bit naive, Ross kept things going business as usual, even as the site gained attention from media and law enforcement worldwide. He even went as far as granting an interview to a writer at Forbes through an encrypted chat. I pulled some of the questions and responses that would give you an indication of what Ross's mindset was at that time and of what motivated him. Question. Do you think there are any limits to the benefit of a free market? If tools like Tor and Bitcoin could become so powerful that they truly create an invincible free market, can free market libertarianism go too far? Answer. That depends on what you want. I want to be able to pursue my dreams and live my life as I see fit, unhindered by others, and I want others to have the same freedom. Your question doesn't make sense to me. How can you go too far protecting people's rights as individuals? How can you go too far liberating people from bondage? Question. Do you feel any moral guilt about selling highly addictive and dangerous drugs to users and even to dealers? Don't drugs like crack and heroin have harmful effects on your customers and on society? And couldn't even children manage to get access to them through the Silk Road? Answer. On the contrary, I'm proud of what I do. I can't think of one drug that doesn't have at least some harmful effects. That's not really the point, though. People own themselves. They own their bodies. And it is their right to put into their bodies whatever they choose. It's not my place or the government's or anyone else's to say what a person does with their own body. Giving people that freedom of choice and the dignity of self-ownership is a good thing. If someone uses drugs, then goes on to hurt other people, then of course they should be held accountable for their actions, whether they were using drugs or not. But to paint all drug users as harmful to society and try to throw them in cages is despicable, and it does more harm to communities and families than drugs ever could. Further, using children to appeal to people's fears is irresponsible. It's the responsibility of parents and those they trust to educate their children about drugs and everything else they will have to make decisions about in their life. Again, not my place or the government's or anyone else's. Question. What's next for the Silk Road? You've mentioned the next phase of the site to me in our pre-interview conversations for a few months now, which you've hinted might go beyond selling drugs. Answer. At its core, Silk Road is a way to get around regulation from the state. If they say we can't buy and sell certain things, we'll do it anyway and suffer no abuse from them. But the state tries to control nearly every aspect of our lives, not just drug use. Anywhere they do that, there's an opportunity to live your life as you see fit, despite their efforts. As the site's number of users grew, so did the number of customer complaints. A vendor misrepresented his product. The product was never delivered. Payment disputes, forgotten passwords. Ross needed help. So he hired Curtis Green a guy who was a buyer and seller on the Silk Road and who had first caught Ross's attention by starting a health and wellness forum. Ross would later ask him to send a scanned copy of his driver's license in. He was in his mid-40s, lived in Spanish Fork, Utah. He had a wife and two daughters. Green would eventually be arrested in a drug bust when an undercover agent posing as a seller on the site reached out to Ross with a business proposal. He had a large batch of cocaine he was looking to sell and wanted Ross to help him find a buyer he could trust. The undercover agent had built up a rapport with Ross over the past year, so Ross asked Green to facilitate the deal. Green used his personal address to receive the shipment. Days after the arrest, Ross noticed an amount of Bitcoin worth millions of dollars had been withdrawn from the company account. With Green suddenly unresponsive, he assumed it was him. He later found out about the arrest and it solidified his suspicions. According to the FBI and private chat messages recovered from the site, this is when Ross reached out to the undercover agent whose real name was Carl Force, 
and asked him to take care of Curtis Green. In the production of this episode, I debated at what point it would be appropriate to introduce the alleged murder for hire or if I should even mention it at all. To be clear, Ross was never charged with anything like this. In fact, he wasn't charged with any crime involving a specific person. On the other hand, the prosecution did introduce private messages obtained from the site that showed Ross discussing the hiring of different people to carry out assaults on users who upset or threatened to blackmail Ross. But as you know, the FBI's cybercrime team eventually gained full control of the site database, which gave them the ability to manipulate all accounts and all messages. And if that sounds unreasonable, consider this. The millions of dollars that came up missing after Curtis Green's arrest was actually taken by undercover agent Carl Forsch and his partner Sean Bridges, and they were eventually sent to prison for their crimes. Because of the doubt surrounding these allegations and the fact that Ross was never charged with anything like this, I decided to make you aware of this part of the story, but to not go in much detail about it. If you're interested in this part of the story, it's covered extensively in Wired magazine. So search for The Untold Story of the Silk Road. IRS agent Gary Alford is the person given the most credit for discovering the name Ross Albright. Alford figured that whoever started Silk Road would have started by trying to generate interest with like-minded people. He searched for websites that used a tour encryption software and eventually wound up on shroomery.org. In January 2011, the same month Ross launched the Silk Road, a user named Altoid made a post on a forum advertising this exciting new service that allows you to buy and sell things anonymously. On a hunch, Gary searched for Altoid on other forums that weren't encrypted. He got a hit on Stack Overflow, a website where people often go to get help solving computer-related problems. A user by the name of Altoid had asked a question about database programming. The email address linked to the account was rossalbright at gmail.com. Through a warrant, the FBI was able to get information on where Ross Albright was accessing the internet from and his latest known address. He was in San Francisco. Now with his name, location, and a healthy suspicion, the FBI was trying to connect Ross to the Silk Road. They didn't know if he was a creator, but they felt there was a strong possibility he was involved. They went to San Francisco to do some physical surveillance. They would find Ross living modestly, renting a small room inside a home he found through an online listing. It took a while, but through what the FBI says was an error on the login page, they were able to bypass the Silk Road security measures and encryption. This allowed them to see where the site's servers were. The servers were located in Iceland. The FBI traveled there and made an exact copy of the Silk Road database. This was huge. They could now access the site of super users, seeing it exactly as Ross would. They could also see where other users were accessing the site from. They used physical surveillance to see if they could line up Ross's activity with the administrator's activity. And they did. When Ross turned on his computer, the admin logged into the Silk Road. When Ross closed his computer, the admin logged out. The pattern was consistent. At his house, in cafes, early in the morning, late at night, Ross was the administrator. On October 1st, 2013, at around 3 p.m., Ross logged off the Silk Road and left his house carrying his laptop. He walked right past an undercover agent and ducked into a cafe. The place wasn't full, but maybe his favorite spot was taken. For whatever reason, he left the cafe without sitting down. He headed to the Glen Park Branch Library next door. About 15 minutes later, a woman and a man who were arguing started making their way towards Ross. As they got closer, the woman began to yell loudly. Once they were directly behind Ross, they stopped and the man grabbed the woman by her collar and raised his fist. While Ross was distracted, a woman that had been sitting across from him the entire time reached over and snatched his computer. He lunged for it, but it was too late. 
It was all an act. There was no argument. There was no fight. Ross was swarmed by FBI agents and arrested. He was still logged in. Because his crimes took place over the internet and involved facilitating drug shipments across the world, Ross was prosecuted in federal court instead of state court. The trial of USA versus Ross Albright lasted nearly a month. The defense's case centered around the idea that Ross did in fact create the Silk Road, but sold it soon after it grew into something he never intended it to be. The court didn't buy this. There was too much evidence to the contrary. In February of 2015, Ross was convicted of multiple crimes, the most serious being aiding and abetting the distribution of narcotics, aiding and abetting distribution over the internet, conspiracy to violate narcotics laws, and conspiracy to run a continuing criminal enterprise. With the potential sentences of his combined convictions, Ross was facing the possibility of life in prison. And in federal court, there is no parole. The person who would decide his fate was federal judge Catherine Forrest. While awaiting the judge's decision, Ross's parents wrote letters to the judge pleading for her to be merciful. His mother, Lynn Albright, wrote, You had the opportunity to sit across the courtroom from Ross for almost a month. You know that the entire time, even when the devastating verdict was read, he conducted himself with dignity and equilibrium. He was respectful to the court and the people handling him. This is not an incorrigible criminal. This is someone who is civilized, ready to cooperate and endure what he must in hopes of returning to society as a law-abiding citizen. It is someone who can be corrected within the least amount of time allowed. More than that is far greater than necessary. Kirk Albright wrote, The Silk Road was created in hopes that something good would come of it. As history has shown, it quickly spiraled out of control. I know Ross regrets the decision to launch and operate the website. He has told me that in our visits to him in prison. I have seen a very pronounced change in his attitude toward life in general and, in particular, to the law and the consequences of breaking the law. He is a very different person now than he was before his arrest. The experience of a year and a half in prison has matured him more than 15 years of life on the outside would have. Judge Forrest, please consider that the illegal aspects of Ross's Silk Road experiment represents a complete departure from the trajectory of his life. Please consider that Ross shared an old house and lived like a grad student when he was arrested. He didn't start the Silk Road out of greed. Money was never a motivating factor for him. He did it because he had an idealistic vision of freedom for all of us. Just as the French Revolution was born of an idealistic idea of freedom and then became a nightmare that consumed its founders, so reads the story of the Silk Road. During the trial, Ross did not testify in court. With his life firmly in the hands of someone else, he broke his silence with a letter to the judge. As I see it, a life sentence is more similar in nature to a death sentence than it is to a sentence with a finite number of years. Both condemn me to die in prison. A life sentence just takes longer. If I do make it out of prison, decades from now, I won't be the same man and the world won't be the same place. I certainly won't be the rebellious risk taker I was when I created the Silk Road. In fact, I'll be an old man, at least 50, with the additional wear and tear that prison life brings. I will know firsthand the heavy price of breaking the law and will know better than anyone that it is not worth it. Even now I understand what a terrible mistake I made. I've had my youth, and I know you must take away my middle years, but please leave me my old age. Please leave a small light at the end of the tunnel, an excuse to stay healthy, an excuse to dream of better days ahead, and a chance to redeem myself in the free world before I meet my maker. In the end, Judge Forrest showed no mercy. She sentenced him to two life sentences plus 40 years. She actually explicitly said in her statement that she wanted to send a message with this. The prosecution asked for that. She said, yes, this was unprecedented. I'm going to set a precedent 
so that any other you know, potential young onla- online drug lords will think twice about following in, in your misguided footsteps, as she said. Right. It's, it's interesting here because, because he said, look, this was basically, this was an act of my youth. You know, I, he, he pleaded for mercy here. But the judge came back and was, was said, no, that, this was, you wanted this to be your legacy, right? Right. She said, you want this to be your legacy? You wanted it to be your legacy? And now it is. As of now, Ross has exhausted every possible appeal. And unless pardoned by the president of the United States, he will die as a prisoner. There are several potential takeaways from the Silk Grove. You can look at it as a grand crime, a miscarriage of justice, or even an inspiration. In researching this story, I felt a strong admiration and support for Ross and how he stood for his beliefs. But at times I found myself a little annoyed with his idealistic view of the world and his unwillingness to concede that turning the world into the wild, wild west isn't necessarily what's best for the people. And I ultimately settled on feeling sorry for him. If you look at the list of Ross's crimes and you just stop there, you would probably conclude that he got exactly what he deserved. But if you take into account who Ross was and why he did what he did, maybe you'd have a different conclusion. His motivation wasn't money. Ross believed in something in a way that very few people ever do. He believed that we should all be captains of our own lives. I'm sure he didn't see it ending like this, but in a way, he gave up his freedom to provide freedom for others. In December of 2012, while the Silk Road was at its height and the FBI was in the process of connecting the dots, Ross sat down in the Jewish Contemporary Art Museum in San Francisco and recorded a one-off podcast with his best friend. They talked about life, their childhoods, lessons learned from past relationships, and they talked about the future. Ross's friend, who had no idea Ross was running the Silk Road and would eventually be sent to prison for life, ironically asked him what he wanted his life to look like in the future. And Ross gave an equally ironic answer. Pretty sure I want to start a family in the next five years. Make, make more friends and I want to focus on being more connected to people. And, uh, 20 years. I want to have had a substantial positive impact on the future of humanity by that time. I think it's a possibility. I honestly do. I, I think I might live further in some form. It doesn't look like Ross is going to start a family and probably wouldn't say he's had a substantial positive impact on humanity. But in a way, Ross, through the memory of what he did and of what it cost him, may just live forever. If you enjoyed this episode, it would mean a lot if you rated it and left a review. It helps bring more visibility to the podcast and lets us know how we can improve. For more information about the show, visit us at antiheropodcast.com and follow us on Instagram at antihero underscore podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell a friend about us and don't forget to subscribe. This is Antihero. Antihero.